This episode is brought to you by the NHL on TNT. When it comes to hockey, the Stanley Cup playoffs are built different. Experience the intensity and insanity on the ice and off it. Starting May 5th on TNT and TBS. Get ready for seven game rounds of knockdowns, dragouts, pressure, and agony as teams go head to head without ever letting up. The Stanley Cup playoffs are known for more than just a few cracked ribs and black eyes. Pushing through pain is the name of the game. With so much edge of your seat action, you'll refuse to shave or change your sweater. Don't say we didn't warn you. Ready to feel the rush? Watch the Stanley Cup playoffs beginning May 5th on TNT and TBS. This episode is brought to you by Cox Contour TV. Find the entertainment you love with Contour TV and Contour Stream Player. Learn more at coxcox.com slash contour. Good morning, Honey Hole Hangout Crew. That was a, one of the more less enthusiastic good mornings we've gotten from you, Cliff. I feel like it's enthusiastic enough. <laughs> I agree. That was more and less. Yeah. So, well, guys, uh, welcome to uh, Honey Hole Hangout. Uh, we're glad you're hanging out with us and uh, listening to us talk about hunting and fishing. we got a great guest. Later on in the podcast, Mike Geary, we're going to talk about the Smith River. Um, so you guys stay tuned for that. And we're going to get right into our normal stuff. And we actually don't have a whiskey review tonight, so we're sorry about that. We ran out of whiskey. Cliff's drinking a Lone Star. Would you care to review? Let me take another sip. Mm-hmm. Professional, like, professional review. What are you tasting? A little bit of malt. Mm-hmm. A little bit of hops. Mm-hmm. Whole lot of freedom. Okay. National beer of Texas. <laughs> the national beer of dude, Texas. Dude, I was going to say, like, can you, like, professional Lone Star review? Like, come on, bro. Is that a thing? Yeah. It's a very reputable beer manufacturer. I well, Can you do? I'm sure there's professional. I've, I bet we could do a quick Google and find a Lone Star beer review. It has to have a review. Oh, have you guys seen that guy on YouTube? It's like this kid. He dresses up in a suit. Oh uh, yeah, the fu- the fast food reviews. The fast food reviews. He dresses up in a suit and then does like a professional review of fast food. Yeah. What do you guys know his yes, name? Uh, it's like Review Bro or something. Review Bra. It's it, they're hilarious. If you guys want to go check like, those out. He's like, welcome to this week's food. And he always pauses. He's like, food review. And he does like McDonald's and Wendy's and like White Castle and all that stuff. Uh, it is. The if you the report of the week is his channel two point three six million subscribers two point three six million he's he, making bank he's doing monetized he is making bank doing fast food reviews yeah creativity man you got to be create come up with a unique idea and it it it'll do well um well let's get right into our questions for the week which we got some today is actually May the fourth. So as everyone knows, may the fourth be with you. Star Wars Day. We got some Star Wars related questions. Uh, I'll go with the first question that uh, we got. It is not Star Wars related, 
but someone said C4 soundbite startles me every time. I mean, you should be expecting that it comes on every time. It comes on every time before C4, but I just threw a random one in there to throw right. the listeners off. It just comes across as loud. It gets much louder than the other sound bites, so if we have the level set beforehand, it comes across as loud. That's enough of that. <laughs> um, are you guys a fan of Star Wars? Nope. No? Cliff? I wouldn't say that I'm... Dude, oh. No, go ahead, go ahead, Cliff. I, I would, Get your Star Wars frustrations out. I wouldn't say that I'm not a fan. Mm-hmm. I do hold a frustration to the fanboyness that follows Star Wars 40-some-odd years after it's come out, and that's not like the movies, the new movies are groundbreaking or great because even after you see them everyone's always like yeah it's all right mm-hmm. it's never like the first original three were mm-hmm. like the three first three star wars absolutely amazing and then they started making episodes one two and three introduced jar jar he threw it all up messed it up there ever since then they've been coming out with spinoffs on spinoffs and spinoffs and it's always Someone pushing their political agenda in it and trying to make a point there and people saying, oh, it was, they're so anticipative of it. And then after it comes out, it's, yeah, it was all right. It's not as good as the last one was. So you don't necessarily dislike Star Wars. It's the fanboyness of Star Wars. Yes. But, okay. But would you consider yourself a fanboy of anything? No. Nothing. I'd like absolutely nothing. Do you see what I'm getting at? Do you see where I'm? Do you see where I'm going with this? No, no, because I'm perfect. (laughs) So you wouldn't consider yourself like a fanboy of any other brands or anything like that that people might construe as like you know Cliff's kind of a fanboy of that. Not not at all. Like uh, a certain camo company that we're all familiar with that. No. You might be a fanboy of. Can't put a can't put a place on it. <laughs> it. It's. I don't see the new movies as being any better than any of the other CGI movies that come out right now. And then for everyone to lose their ever living minds over it is what bugs me. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm going. That's where you're going. Okay, uh, Ian, are you I a Star Wars fan? Dude, yes, absolutely. And I, I also this think may that have it, some context. I also think Go that ahead, it's a, a hipster cultureness to it. Like, oh, it's part of like my childhood. It's memberberryisms, and that's <laughs> what it is. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, people like what they had in their childhood, so. Um, I definitely can see your thoughts on that because I definitely watch as a kid and hold it in a higher regard because I enjoyed it as a kid. Go ahead, Ian. Yeah, no, I love Star Wars. Um, I would say I'm definitely a fan of, you know, the early movies. I do agree with Cliff that I think the later ones, you know, there isn't that much difference. It's a lot of CGI uh, versus like the models being built. But yeah, the, the early ones, definitely a huge fan. Grew up on them. You know what? I would 
if someone came up to me and displayed the same enthusiasm of Indiana Jones minus the Crystal Skull mm-hmm. and yep. Star Wars, I would say, all right, you like it's there. I, I understand why you like it because I like Indiana Jones, but they're not making new Indiana Jones movies and everyone losing their did make a new Indiana Jones movie. The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was the last one made, and that mm-hmm. was in the 2000s, and I said excluding that one. That is mm-hmm. the bad movie in it, just like Star Wars episode Jar Jar Binks. Mm-hmm. No, I got gotcha. you. Well, we got some Star Wars questions, so we'll uh, we'll see what they are. And uh, <laughs> uh, the first one is, uh, the first person asked, do people just look over the fact that young Vader killed younglings. I don't know what that uh, is. No, you don't remember that when Vader uh, Vader did do that. Yes. Yes, he he in what one of them maybe number three he kills like a bunch of it, they don't show him doing it but they like you know these kids come to him asking for help and they're like what are we gonna do and then he turns his lightsaber on and then it cuts to a different scene so the assumption is that that he killed a bunch of kids. Good for him. <laughs> You're really <laughs> sour about this, Cliff. Maybe we need to sit you down and w- watch all the Star Wars with you. And Absolutely not. No? I got better things to do in my time. Okay, Cliff. Who is your favorite Star Wars character? Be- no. I'd have to say Han. Han Solo. Why? He's badass. Is it because of is it because of the his association with Indiana Jones? No, I mean it is Harrison Ford still, which is the only person I'd say that really had a career after Star Wars. But uh, <laughs> um, he was kind of a badass. Yeah, no, for sure. And then I would say Bubba Fat. Bubba Fat. Yeah. Boba Fett. No, Bubba Fett. <laughs> B-U-B-B-A, Bubba Fett. Uh, what about, who had like less than a minute of screen time maybe? But not less than a minute, but like had a couple minutes of screen time and he's your favorite? Second favorite? I still just think he's a badass. He is and cool. the part of the whole like, because technically he's a Mandalorian. Mm. I do like the Mandalorian show. I was going to ask if you watched because that. Because... I like it because it's pretty much bounty hunting the whole time. Mm-hmm. And I like that aspect of it. Mm. Um, yeah. What about you, Ian? Your favorite Star Wars character? I love Han, but since Cliff took Han, I will take... I like Obi-Wan. That's what I was going to say. He's cool. Yeah, uh, I like him. I think young Obi-Wan is cool. Yeah. And I think old yeah. Obi-Wan is cool, too. Yeah, I was going to say Obi-Wan, but since you took Obi-Wan, I'm going to go with Darth Maul. Dude, Darth Maul's um, even though we got he has that dual lightsaber. lightsaber. Even though we got cut in half. Mm. See, that's one of the movies that I think just absolutely sucked. No, the movie was the movie except for Obi Wan, Qui Gon, and Darth Maul. Because I think you know uh, the 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 thing with the older movies is that like the lightsaber dueling wasn't the greatest. They had a really good story, and then it was like pretty basic lightsaber dueling. And then, so you go to those movies, then the next movie that comes out is Episode One, which has some regrettable moments like Jar Jar and just some weird stories. But then you get to the end, and you have a two-on-one lightsaber fight, and it's like a million times better 
than the originals and uh i think it just got a, that got a lot of people excited and i like darth maul with you know no one knew there was a double-sided lightsaber and then he's taking on two jedi at once okay and, i will say when he busted out the dual lightsaber and there's that music in the background with all like the, no one expected it yeah it's the first time you saw that that was i guess kind of cool and then takes on two Jedi at once, and but he does die. Does that constitute something to have its own? May the fourth be with you, day, and like all these people who try and act nerdy but aren't really nerdy, come up and have some sort of pop culture relevancy. Man, you're really against this, aren't you? I just hate the pop culture culture like. I'm cool because I like Star Wars instead of... I don't think I'm cool because I like Star Wars. I just like Star Wars. Yeah, you do, Landon. It's all right, though. I still like you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, was Jar Jar the reason one through three movies sucked, or are they just terrible? I think they're just terrible. Yeah, I think... Um, I think it was bad story writing, bad... Everything. I don't think it had the substance of what the 70s movies had. Yeah, I think the 70s movies was uh, definitely much better story. Um, you know, the characters and stuff weren't the greatest in the originals. Um, the acting is, eh, it, you know, by some of the characters. Uh, it's super complicated. Like, you know, watching it as a kid, you didn't even really understand. You're just watching it for the lightsabers and all the fun stuff going on. But then when you go back and watch as a, as an adult, it doesn't, you know, you you understand what's going on, but it's just super complicated. Although I will say I I I, I do enjoy and rewatch one through three, but um I I I don't think they're the best by any means. Um, There's great parts of those movies, but the movies as a whole are I would much rather sit down and watch the Back to the Futures or Indiana Jones. Preferably Indiana Jones over Back to the Future too. Yeah. Th- th- those are good movies too. I would I would agree. I'd watch all the movies that we've discussed. Yeah. Yeah. Ian, any opinions? Did we lose Ian? Uh, oh, no, no, I'm here. I'm just going on mute because I breathe loud. Um I love Star Wars. I grew up on it, but I'm not fanatical about it. Um, I do think to Cliff's point that people can take things too far, no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the end of the day, too, it's their life, and they can do whatever they want. And we're all nerdy about something. Yeah, and I can dislike them for it. I'm not saying that it's Yeah, you're free. (laughs) No, that's fine. You're more sour on this, Cliff, than I thought you would be. Okay, moving on. Moving on. All right. Um, have you guys done any hunting or fishing since we last podcasted? Been out, Cliff. You've been uh, you've been bow tinkering. Yeah, I've been tinkering. So what what do you what do you got going on? You told me earlier that you were working on some new stuff, and you got your groups in a so tight little tight little group. Yeah. So after the interview with Preston. Um, which is a great one if y'all are interested in archery. We, I connected back with him, and we kind of came up with a game plan and course of action on trying to make me like get back to fun to fundamentals of archery. But in doing so, 
we realized there were some stuff that we can do to the bow to make these processes a little bit easier, more enjoyable, and stuff like that. So right now I've been, I took my sight tape and everything back off. I don't have a sight right now. I mean, the housing's on, but I don't have anything to reference to. Um, and I've just been blank billing. The purpose of that is to just work on process. What is that? Explain what that means. So to blank bell is to shoot at a a foam block or bells of hay, whatever you normally, your backstop without a target. So I'm shooting, but not at a target. Mm-hmm. So I'm not worrying about where my arrow is going necessarily what I'm working on is developing my process again from beginning to end and cementing those in my head. So everything's always a consistent, Mm -hmm. which includes trigger pull. So instead of pushing the trigger or punching it, whatever you want to call it, slapping it, making it go off myself consciously I'm working on squeezing it and letting the shot just kind of go off naturally once it gets there. What release are you using? Because I know you have a lot of releases and you've tinkered around with them. What is your preferred release right now? So my preferred release right now is my Scott Talon. But what type of Not brand. It's a a wrist strap release. Okay. Finger trigger. Mm Mm-hmm release but you can adjust the poundage via spring and how tight you put it or and you can adjust the travel and all this other stuff you can adjust the length of it you can adjust all this other crap i really like it um as far as finger wrist strap releases go i highly suggest the chat talon because there's a lot of things you can do to it to make it customizable to you in your shot style. Mm-hmm. Um, I like a release strap. And the reason I went back to it, because I have used a thumb release, I have used a hinge. I keep going back to the wrist st- strap style release because I want to know where it's at at all times. It's for, I, like, hunt, for like hunting. Correct. It's on your wrist. I don't it's have to not be in like a pocket. Right. I don't have to be like, oh, where which pocket did I put it in or did it knock off my D loop? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just there. Yeah. I do know that they make hinge, back tension, thumb releases with a wrist strap now. I don't want to buy another release. Mm-hmm. I really like mine. Releases are pretty is. expensive too if you get a nice one. Yeah. And the Scott Talon, I think if you buy it off of Scott, it's like a 119. Mm-hmm. It's not a necessarily cheap release, but it's not bad priced. Mm-hmm. So been working on trigger control and pull, working on blank belling for my process. We swapped out the mods on my bow. So I actually dropped roughly 10 pounds and draw weight. Why'd you do that? Because then instead of focusing on how much weight am I pulling back right now, I'm focusing solely on my process and doing what I need to do 
And then when I build back up my foundations, then I can bump it back up. Gotcha. I can clearly pull back 65-ish pounds without an issue. But holding 65 pounds while trying to think through my process is a little bit more difficult. Mm-hmm. And so we dropped it back down to give me a little bit more control over it to focus on what I need to be doing as far as like my body, my posture, my engaging my uh, lats, muscles and stuff Mm -hmm. like that instead of keeping it in the shoulders or pushing out with my front elbow or anything like that. So it's going to make me more of a stable archer doing this. Mm. And then when I want to, I can switch it back out. I have my old mods with me. So you were saying you were shooting pretty tight groups last time you went. Where did at the end, did you like, trying to shoot at a target or was that someone left a target up and I shot at it okay I also we weighed out my bow to see which weight would tilt and stuff after the shot so most bows which I didn't realize this but it makes sense but your bow will tilt forward or tilts back or can'ts left or can'ts right Um, and the purpose of a stabilizer is to fix that well, for years, everyone's just put a stabilizer on, the, on front. the front of their bow. So everyone's like, oh, I'm going to do this without realizing the way that their bow cants and tilts, which the sight on your bow can affect. If you have a heavy sight up front that's hanging off, that's effectively doing what a stabilizer would do. So you add a stabilizer on top of that. And then your bow's naturally going to want to push forward. Or if you have a quiver on your bow or something like that, then your bow's going to naturally want to cant towards the side of the quiver. So what we found is that my bow kind of cants forward and to the right. So we put a sidebar, yeah, a sidebar offset on it and now after the shot the bow is sitting pretty much parallel straight up and down like it's not moving at all nice um and in doing so i was able to shoot at 20 yards probably within the size of a quarter feeling pretty happy about that i was because at first i wasn't like super happy about not having a stabilizer on front Cause I was like, it looks goofy. It looks real weird to me. Mm. Um, I want to put one on, but I'm not necessarily truly allowing myself without adjusting for the weight in the back. But on the other hand, I don't want to add weight to the back just to add weight to the front because that's going to increase the overall mass of the bow and just make it heavier in general, which then that's more weight you're having to carry out into the field. It's more weight you're having to hold up with one arm and all this other stuff. So there's still a little bit of tinkering to do on it, but right now I'm really liking the setup. Lost about 10-ish pounds maybe in draw weight, but I was still getting just as much of a impact with my arrows as I was 10 pounds heavier at 65. Okay. Gotcha. Ian, do you have any, uh, you've been hunting or fishing since the last time we podcasted? 
done anything outdoors? I know you're on the market for a scope. Yeah, no, nothing hunting or fishing related. Paddleboarding, which was awesome, just to be out on the water. Um, but I'm itching to go hunting or fishing soon. Yeah, I'm in the market for a scope. I have this 80 year old 270 that I bought, not knowing that 270 ammo would quickly become impossible to find. So yeah. maybe I should sell it and buy a 6.5 Creed more. That's hard to find ammo too. Uh, ammo in general is just hard to find. Yeah, you, you have can to find you can find six point five Creed more pretty easier bought, than you can find. Yeah, you can you can find. I bought two seventy on the shelf find, at so. Academy one time when I went. I think it's just are you lucky in the right place at the right time to find ammo? You have any left? Yeah, dude, I can give you some five dollars uh, a round. No, that's the only thing. Um, <laughs> I'm probably going hunting in the next two weeks, two or three weeks. We'll see. Okay. Okay, you're gonna try. You're trying to get it sighted in before you go on the trip. Yeah, probably. I got a million other things on my plate right now, so I haven't like. It's kind of. It should be the highest priority, but it's not. Yeah, I just bought a rifle and a scope. Uh, scope. Okay, yeah. Let's today. talk about that. Yeah, tell tell us about that. That's going to be a lot more interesting than anything I have to say. So go for it. Yeah. So I've been on the market for a new rifle. Um, I've been talking with my dad on and off about different stuff for pr- probably the better part of at, at least a year and a half just you know talking about it um cuz I've wanted one uh I want to get something up to where I can shoot longer ranges I'm not trying to get into like long range shooting or anything but I want to get uh I want to get comfortable shooting up to 500 yards um, I want to get cuff- comfortable up to shooting 500 yards. Um, now I I currently have a 270. Uh, like Ian said, it was my first rifle. Um, and I could, you know, I don't have the I don't have the right optics on that gun to do that. But I could have just as easily just changed optics and you know got used to shooting that gun. But I also kind of wanted to selfishly buy buy a new gun as well so that did that thought did cross my mind it's like well, what if i just upgrade my optics and then you know get better at shooting that 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 270 um but i also wanted to just buy another gun and that 270 you know i shoot it about 100 150 yards is where i feel comfortable um it's dialed in um so i can i can have that rifle ready to go in situations where i know you know i'm gonna have a 100 yard shot and uh this other rifle, uh, I, I just want to, I want to get comfortable shooting long ranges and I want to have confidence if I'm shooting 300, 400 yards that I know what I'm doing. I have confidence when I pull the trigger. Um, um, and, uh, I'm not, you know, shying away from, from certain hunting situations because of the range. Um, so I bought a, um, Christensen Arms Ridgeline is the model from a local gun store and 6.5 PRC caliber, um, which is a 6.5 Creedmoor um, that's basically like a Magnum cartridge. It's just got more powder behind it, and uh, the bullet shoots two to 300 feet per second faster. Um, I wanted to, you know, 6.5 is the hot round right now, and people have their opinions on it, but uh, 
Um, it's what I felt confident and what most people recommended when I talked to them about it at shooting long ranges. Um, and again, I'm not looking to shoot like 1,000, 2,000 yards or anything. Um, and, you know, a 270 will shoot 500 yards. You know, basically any rifle you buy will shoot that distance. I just wanted to get something fun and different I can tinker around with and uh, have a good time. But I bought a nice rifle. Uh, it's really lightweight, so I can carry it around um, a lot. I'm going to put a uh, uh, probably put a bipod on it, and I just got a, a Vortex scope to put on it. Cliff, what? What scope? Uh, I can't remember the exact model, but was I it had the one w- that I sent you. Yeah, that's the one I ordered. Landon, uh, what's the first thing you're going to go hunt with it? Uh, the first thing I'm going to do is shoot it a lot. I'm not going to take it hunting for a while. I got the 270 ready to go, so if I if I'm going to go in a pinch, I'm going to take the that rifle out. Razor HD LHT in a three to fifteen by forty two. Yeah, three to fifteen by forty two. Um. That scope seemed best suited for my needs. Cliff had found it for me. I had done a bunch of research on it, watched videos, read articles, talked to my dad, um, and that 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 scope seemed like a good balance of being able to shoot far but also being light because I bought an ultralight gun, and, you know, why would I buy an ultralight gun and then put a really heavy scope on it because I want to be able to carry it around and it not be super heavy. Um, to make up for all the ultralightness. Yeah, exactly. I'm just going to balance it out, you know. Yeah, the, Ian, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to shoot it a lot. There's a 300-yard range in San Antonio. Um, I'm going to get it dialed into shooting 300 and then practice shooting you further. You dial it in at 100. No, then... I'm going to dial it in at 100. Yeah, I'm going to dial it in at 100, but shoot, start getting to shooting comfortably up to 300 um, and get the performance I want, and then I'll find places where I can shoot further. But first thing is... Um, find ammo. Uh, step number two is go and shoot it. So, uh, and I'm hoping to have it ready to go for deer season this year is my plan. So there we go. But uh, I'm really, I'm really excited about that. I like the gun a lot. Um, we actually, I actually found that gun in when your birthday weekend, when we went to the gun store, I asked them if they had any of that caliber. Doesn't that one have the, go ahead. It's got the carbon fiber barrel. Yeah, it's a carbon fiber wrapped barrel. It just cuts, it helps to cut weight. So actually, I had found it at that gun store and asked them what guns they had in that caliber. And then I hadn't even ever heard of Christensen Arms, but they were talking about it. I did research and I'm, I'm real happy with the purchase. I haven't gotten the gun in yet, but I got the scope today. So once I find some ammo, or if any of you guys have 6.5 PRC or uh, Ian, if you can find some 6.5 PRC, I'll trade you some 270. Dude, we might be able to set that up. Yeah. Sir. If you're out and you find it, let me know. Gabe is sending me barbecue photos. Shout out to Gabe. Oh, Gabe's sending you barbecue <laughs> photos. Nice. On Facebook. Yeah. Shout out to Gabe. Nice. Um, yeah, that's, that's, I think that's all the updates. You guys ready to get into our articles? Let's do it. All right. So first up, we have Cliff's Cool Conservation Corner, C4. All right, I wanted to hear the rubble. (laughs) So last week, uh, Landon asked me to look into whirling disease and some other red algae. But I'm going to do whirling disease. 
So whirling disease um, is caused by a parasite, the myoxoporin, M-Y-X-O-P-O-R-E-A-N, parasite, and is found in salmon and trout and also wild fish populations. It was first described in rainbow trout in Germany a century ago. But its range has spread and it has appeared in most of Europe, including Russia, the United States, South Africa, Canada, and other countries. So what does it do, not to butt into your research? I kind of know, but for the listeners. It affects uh, juvenile fish, fingerlings, and and fry, and causes a skeletal deformation and neurological damage Fish whirl forward in an awkward corkscrew-like pattern instead of swimming normally. Find feeding di- they find feeding difficult and are more vulnerable to predators. The mortality rate is high for f- fingerlings up to 90% of infected populations, and those that do not survive are deformed by the parasite residing in their cartr- cartilage and bone. They act as a reservoir for the parasite, which is released into the water following the fish's death. Interesting. So, fish gets whirling disease. Mm-hmm. 90% mortality rate for fingerlings. So, so in the name is Myoxobolus cerebral, cerebral, cerebralis. So, it kind of looks like I don't I'm not a doctor. Yeah, I think that's a, it sounds like it's a parasite, though, that affects them. Yeah, it, so it that does say be, it's a parasite. But um, I've seen pictures, and the fish, you know, it, it's it's a hard life for the fish that have it, and uh, they it, it messes up their skeletal structure, and then, like Cliff said, they swim in like a corkscrew or whirling motion. Um, but it's interesting that the parasite uses it as a host until it's deceased and then kind of releases itself into the water to find another, another fish, um, which I guess makes sense for a parasite, but I had never heard that, that yeah. side of it. I'm not an expert on it. No, no, I've just heard of it. I've never seen it. Uh, I've seen pictures and people talk about it a lot in trout fishing areas. They're real worried about like, same thing with like Didymo algae. Um, they're worried about cross contamination, you know, you walking in one river, walking to another river, carrying that parasite to that river, affecting the fish. So, um, well, thanks, Cliff. All right, now we have On Patrol. So, uh, I have a Game Warden article. Um, This is um, from GameWardenEDU.org. And it's five new ways game wards are catching poachers in the act. The first is uh, thermal imaging cameras. They're using infrared cameras that detect heat. What's new about it is the computer software can be combined with these to automatically detect humans and sound an alarm. Cameras with this software installed can be set up at bottleneck points on hilltops or along roads where would-be poachers might frequent. When the cameras detect a human presence based on the shape and movement characteristics of a target, they alert game wardens who can then determine a possible intent to poach. With a zoom lens and the ability to detect poachers in the dead of night, 
from up to one mile away, these new types of cameras have already proven to be game changers in some areas. Um, I didn't know they were using that, but that would make sense and super interesting. Um, the next one, number two, is ballistic shockwave sensors. These types of sensors are already installed in places like Washington, D.C. and other major cities throughout the world where gun violence is rampant. They work on the same principle that seismographs use to detect shock waves from an earthquake that travel through the ground. The report of gunfire creates shock waves that travel through the air. Because they go so fast, the bullet also makes their own shock waves. Thanks to advances in technology, we now have devices that are sensitive enough to detect these ballistic shock waves that move through the air. When a ballistic shock wave is detected, the sensor sends a notification to game wardens. With an array of detectors set up through an area, game enforcement can use data from at least three points to triangulate the exact geolocation of where a gunshot has been fired. That is interesting. It sounds like with this one specifically, they're using it for like poaching in uh, Africa. And, uh, you know... uh, they're using it for poaching in Africa to uh, catch people, you know, shooting things they shouldn't be shooting. Um, I think the next one, drones, um, I think most people would know about, but uh, uh, game wardens have been using drones, and uh, wildlife conservation officers and game wardens are also using the latest technological developments. Drones bring several advantages with them for game protection, chiefly an eye in the sky that can record evidence. They can also be fitted with some of the technology advances we've mentioned, like infrared heat detection cameras for night vision, zoom cameras, and shockwave acoustic sensors. So they can take a drone and use all the technology we just talked about um, to help catch poachers. And I know they're also, like in another sense, using drones if people are out lost in the woods, using infrared and stuff to help try to find people. The next is DNA analysis. Recent advances in DNA analysis technology is shaping up to revolutionize how game wardens fight poachers. Using DNA samples collected from a big game animal combined with a radio transmitter tracking, biologists are able to create a detailed geographic map of a herd's territory. Doing this over a large area allows them to make location-specific database of an entire animal population and herd families. So, for example, if a game warden finds someone in possession of a bear paw, that officer can run the bear's DNA through the database to determine where it came from. If the bear or even the bear's relative is in the database, game wardens can determine a very specific location for where they might find the bear's body. Um, If they are able to locate that kind of physical evidence, they can send the poacher to jail, and um, even if they aren't able to locate the bear's body, they can alert other game wardens in the area to be on the lookout for poachers, especially if multiple bear parts are found to have been poached from a certain region. And the last new technology is vital sign monitoring in real time. This one seems hard to believe, but some conservation groups are actually embedding heart monitors in big game. Once the animal's heart stops, whoever's monitoring the live feed gets an alert. What's more, such devices are being linked with other high-tech tools like video cameras, microphones, and GPS collars. One group in South Africa is testing a system that involves many of these elements combined. The conservation group project from the UK has has deployed an embedded heart rate monitor into a population of rhinos. Once a rhino's heart rate becomes too fast or too slow, the monitor alerts a team in a remotely activated camera that has been installed in a borehole on the rhino's horn. If it appears there's an approaching event, 
the team, um, it alerts the game wardens and vectors them into the Rhino's GPS coordinates. What do you guys think about that? Like any of those technologies? Or have you heard of it or any of that new? I know they were using uh, infrared technologies and cameras. I'm not too. familiar with that at all. I'm surprised it just didn't say social media. Because a lot of pictures post on social media oh, and they I get know. busted. I know. I think this was more like preventative where social media is like after the fact. Yeah. But um, the seismograph thing is interesting where they're able to triangulate a gunshot based on like seismograph locations. I think that is, um, I think that's super interesting and would be curious to like see the technology in, in action. What do you think, Ian? I think people shouldn't poach one, but I am glad that the technology is catching up. There was an interesting documentary um, that I watched where this guy had bought a bunch of rhinos and was actually cutting off their horns to prevent people from, you know, because the poachers were just going after the horns, right? Mm -hmm. And then they would just, like, destroy the animal. But, yeah. The, uh, yeah. I, it's on Netflix where they were just cutting them off, and yeah, then it keeps yeah. the... And he's pretty famous. I can't remember the gentleman's name. Yeah. But, yeah, it's like the poachers are only going after ivory, right? And yeah. they'll just destroy the animal. But, you know, to kind of his, this gentleman's theory was to keep the, you know, species alive. He would, you know, he would invest a tremendous amount of money into them, but cut the horns off. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, no, for sure. Was your question basically about the tech that they're using to catch poachers? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, some of that stuff I hadn't even thought was more know, power to him, man. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It's definitely interesting. I mean, surveillance is, um, you know, there's a lot of different arguments to be made about it, um, which we won't get into because that's a whole thing. But I think in this instance, I, you know, I think we can all say we're pro them catching poachers and, you know, we're anti-poaching. So, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. All right. Well, that's my article. Uh, Ian, I think we're on to neat things in nature. <laughs> Okay, this is literally from Smithsonian, and it was published March 1st of this year. Mm -hmm. This is the title. For constipated scorpions, females suffer reproductively, males not so much. What? This after is a real the, article. After, I'm going to read it again. For constipated scorpions, females suffer reproductively, males not so much. After the arachnids drop their tails, poop backs up until it kills them. But before that, it can affect pregnancy. What? This is a direct quote. Certain, scor certain scorpions, like many lizards, are capable of breaking off part of their tails during a predatory attack. Unlike lizards, however, these scorpions have a particular anatomy in which their anus resides near their stinger at the end of the tail. Thus, when a scorpion breaks off its tail, it comes at a terrible cost. The scorpion loses its ability to defecate, ensuring it a slow death by constipation over the ensuing months. Oh, hey, when that happens. This is actually really <laughs> sad. That is a direct quote. But yeah, they can't poop, and so they die. If their tail gets broken off. Yeah. It, the article mentions this is a stump-tailed scorpion. And yeah, it can affect uh, yeah, their ability to reproduce for the females. Hmm. They're South American arachnids, apparently. And they're kind of a, if you look at the picture, kind of a brown color. Um, the article says 
the sting is a bit less painful than a bee sting. Name, or maybe I don't know if it's a gentleman. I apologize. An individual named Solomari Hernandez. Oh, I'm sorry, female. Uh, who knows from experience? She says, and they are very fast, which is not very common in scorpions. Wow. Hmm. So I guess, um, yeah, I guess she's a she's a she wrote this paper. Uh, oh, okay. I'm pardon me, Miss uh, Mrs. Solomari Garcia Hernandez wrote this article in the American Naturalist, and that's what they're citating it from. Interesting. Then they have like some awkward pictures of like the back of scorpions, which I was like, what? <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know how it's. I didn't read the rest of the article to see how it's affecting the species long term, but that sucks, right? Yeah, and that's interesting too. I wouldn't have it's thought about deer- that. Like with the li- like you talked about the lizards, you know, you might just assume that tail grows back, not a problem. But you don't think about a slow, painful, constipated death. I do daily. Yeah, it says. Do you- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it says this is another direct quote. During simulated predatory attacks, male scorpions drop their tails eighty-eight percent of the time. Really? Well, females, I guess this is a controlled study. Yeah, yeah. So it's a slow death of constipation in scorpions found in South America. Well, thanks for bringing your article, Ian. I would say that's pretty neat. I was going to say the same thing. I was like, well, that's pretty neat, but it's also, uh, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, All right. Well, I think just with us left before the interview is we have a wood tip submission. He called us, so we'll see what wood tip has to say. Morning, boys. This here wood tip, pickle chip, giving you another call. Uh, You know, boys, I I, uh, done listened to the, the episode uh, last week, I guess. Uh, uh, got a ding on my phone this morning. Okay, you know, you know so that's kind of like my reminder. All right, I better call you, boy. All right, you know, about a once-week deal. Okay, you know, around then I miss. Okay, but, you know, we got things going on. Uh, but, you know, we've had a pretty good, pretty good week. You know, we've had some clients out and, you know, like always. Okay, but, you know, i got to tell you, it slows down a little bit. But, you know, when it gets hot, you know, it's starting to get hot. But, you know, we've been getting it the last couple of weeks. You know, we got them groceries. All right, we've been sending people home with some food. You know what I'm saying? You know, because South Texas, we got them groceries. All right, you know, got pig meat. All right, we got them. We're going to get them. But uh, anyhow, we've been doing good. We've been doing good. Uh, you boys asked me about a Tesla. Uh, uh, I'm going to tell you, boys, I don't know too much about it other than it's electric. Uh, and I don't know if, you know, driving an electric vehicle, okay, really makes you all that much more, you know, environmentally friendly. All right. So I don't know if I drive one or not. Okay. I'm, I mean, I'm probably not going to spend the money on one. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Because no fooling. I bet they're expensive. I bet they're pricey. All right. I bet they got a little price tag on but listen, okay, I mean, you know, I got a Jeep, okay, and I'm going to tell you, you know, it's a pretty environmentally friendly vehicle, all right, number one, okay, it's from 1951, okay, <laughs> so, you know, I'm kind of like recycling, all right, a little bit, you know what I'm saying, uh, and also, uh, you know, it doesn't use a lot of gas, okay, so it's, you know, pretty fuel efficient, all right, you know, and I run LED lights on it, okay, oh boy, got me hooked up with, you know, with the LED lights, okay, you know, for better better efficiency you know it ain't got all that electric crap on there okay so 
you know, we're not, you know, plus boys, I just, I'm gonna burn some of them, burn some gas, all right, oil is where it's at, okay, all right, we ain't got, you know, there is a never-ending supply, these people talking about we're gonna burn up the world in 150 years or full of crap, okay, all right, buy oil, all right, put some gas in your car, crying out loud, so no, no, I'm not getting a Tesla or electric vehicle, now you dog, y'all done triggered me now, okay, no fooling, you know, you need to buy gas, you know, go out there and buy you a diesel, all right, get you a big diesel, okay, and and support the oil industry. You boys, I'm a South Texas man, okay. All right, we like oil, okay. I mean, have y'all talking? You know, y'all seen my bum jacks, okay. All right, you know, but uh, you know, yeah, I'm environmentally friendly. You know, environmentally friendly. You know, we we keep it clean around here. We pick up pick up our trash, okay. And we don't shoot things. We ain't supposed to be shoot. You know, we ain't driving around shooting stop signs or nothing crazy. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, so we're environmental around here. We're environmental. We like, you know, we like a sustainable agriculture. Okay, all right. And, and speaking of that, we got them groceries. All right, you know what I'm saying? Sustainable with them pigs. All right. So anyhow, but you know, one do one thing I do want to talk about though is y'all talking about putting bananas or something uh, in your beer. And uh, you know, back in the day, we used to drink that pearl. Back when they had the good stuff, you know what I'm saying? We drink it about about room temp, a little bit warm, okay? And we throw a banana in there. You know, it wasn't bad. wasn't bad. I recommend it. Highly recommend it. But uh, anyhow, that's pretty much it, boys. We're having we're having a good week, and we're gonna keep having a good week. And uh, I guess we'll catch up with you boys next time. This here's Wood Tip Pickle Chip. Y'all have a good week. Bananas and beer. I don't remember that. Well, we had a whiskey that tasted like bananas. Oh. Uh, you could taste bananas on the front end. But uh, you think, uh, I think Woodtip is, uh, he's got his pump jacks and he's trying to sell, like, get the oil <laughs> prices to go up some more so he can make some more money is what it sounds like. Yeah, I don't know. He said he doesn't burn that much gas in that 1951 Jeep. Yeah, but. Well, how much is not that much gas to. What to uh, wood tip? I know. <laughs> I think it's a scale. Because <laughs> I would okay bet. by by. Go ahead, dude. A hundred percent wood tip thinks like twelve miles a gallon is good. He's like, well, my old Jeep got ten. Like we all know. <laughs> like, like I don't burn. I don't burn that much gas. Like, come on, man. Like, no. Sorry, wood tip. Yeah. I love you, bro. <laughs> no. Uh, He's trying to sell, trying to get those oil prices up. He's got his pump jacks. We heard him in the background, and uh, I could see why he wouldn't want electric cars out there because I guess that means he's not making as much money. Yeah. Yeah. You were very agreeable today, Cliff, except for on Star Wars. This episode is brought to you by Cox Contour TV. Sometimes it's hard to decide what to watch, but Cox Contour TV helps make that decision easier. Enjoy live TV, on-demand programs, DVR recordings, and music all in one place. And only with the sound of your voice with the Contour Voice Remote. Plus, catch the golf and basketball action you've been waiting for on the Contour Sports app. Learn more at coxcox.com slash contour. This episode is brought to you by Cox Contour TV. Sometimes it's hard to decide what to watch, but Cox Contour TV helps make that decision easier. Enjoy live TV, on-demand programs, DVR recordings, and music all in one place. And only with the sound of your voice with the Contour Voice Remote. 
Plus, catch the golf and basketball action you've been waiting for on the Contour Sports app. Learn more at coxcox.com slash contour. We hit a nerve. It's not that I dislike Star Wars. I just, I don't agree with all the fandom around it at this point. I know. Well, we'll move on from that. Well, guys, um, we hope uh, we're going to get Mike on the phone. And uh, Mike Geary from Healing Waters Lodge and Lewis and Clark Expeditions up in Montana. And we hope you enjoy the interview. All right. Hey, guys. So I'm really excited to have Mike Geary with uh, Lewis and Clark Expeditions and Healing Waters Lodge in Montana. And I've been to Healing Waters before with a group. And then I'm doing a trip with his Lewis and Clark Expeditions uh, in a couple weeks with my dad. So I wanted to bring Mike on, and we're going to talk about, like, pre-trip planning if you wanted to do a week-long float trip. Because I know we have guys that like to go and camp on the river and do that even here in Texas. So I think there's will be there will be a lot of valuable information. But, Mike, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about the history of how you got up and running in Montana? Uh, I got here by a lifetime of total underachievement. So uh- – <laughs> I left Austin, Texas, and I think about 1978. And at the at the time in the West, there were uh, they were called seismograph crews and doodle buggers that were part of oil exploration in the West. And uh, if you were on a pre-release program for prison, you had an automatic job. And so there were all these crews going through the West, and that's how I ended up in Montana. And then I started tending bar downtown Helena. And when I was tending bar, there was a fly shop owner that would come in with a lot of regularity. And that was my, that's how I got started fly fishing. And so he always needed help on the Smith River. And this is, you know, over 40 years ago. I got started on the Smith River by working on a gear boat. But what makes the Smith River so unique for Montana and the rest of the United States is that once you put in and you commit to going, you are gone for 60 miles. So there's only two public access points. Uh, you put it in a place called White Camp Baker that's outside of a small town called White Sulphur Springs. And uh, you launch those boats and the next thing you know, you are gone for five days and you're camping for four nights and you've come out at a place called the Eden Bridge that's about 40 miles from Great Falls, Montana. So it's still the, the classiest game in town. The only other rivers in the United States that would be that would be close to that would be the the Black Canyon of the Gunnison and the South Fork of the Flathead. But the Smith is uh, seventy. They allow seventy three commercial trips. We have twenty six of them. The, the people are more adventuresome, so some people go go down in April, and they can. Uh, get chopped out of ice because of the snowstorms that will go through that canyon. And we run out of water sometime in July. So it's a very short season, but it has great scenery, great fishing. And again, there's nothing like it in the lower United States. So why does it, why does it run out of water in July? Is there, is it like a snow melt thing? All the runoffs already ended and no rain or uh, are they pumping for agriculture? Yeah. How much rain do you get in San Antonio a year? Oh gosh, I wish I knew. Cliff, you would know that. You would know that. No, Cliff doesn't know either. Okay. 
we get 10 inches of precipitation a year. Okay. So it's totally dependent on snow melt. Mm-hmm. And the snow melt, it crests, or the river crests, normally around the, the third or third week in May. And then it slowly starts to go down. Now we'll get rainstorms, and that might spike it up. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of ride that wave of a spike going down, spike going down. And at some point, you just run out of water. You know, irrigation has a, an awful lot to do with it. But it's it's overall just not enough water. So what what is the prime time if you were like these this week is your best chance because i know i know it's a gamble you never know when the when the peak is going to be and you know any date you pick is always a gamble and you know you have to have a permit to go down the river so i'm sure people might draw just a random permit um what what is prime time now your date is june 15 mm-hmm Never want to go then. It's absolutely, you want to avoid June 15th at all costs. So you, June 15th is a, a direct bullseye for going down the river. So normally and historically when the river fishes best, it's as it is coming down, not as, it, as water is coming up. June 15th, you, you, the, the river is primarily uh, crested from all the snowpack. And so it's on the decline and the water starts to clear so that's that's just an excellent date. Plus, you start getting a lot of golden stoneflies that time of year. Okay. Oh, that's great. Um, the average rainfall in San Antonio is about thirty-one inches a year. Thirty-one inches. Yeah. Three and times w- as much than we get here. And we got about fifteen of those inches last week. And that's an average. It's yeah. not. It's not saying uh-huh. that like every year <laughs> you're getting just thirty. Um. So. Uh, what is some of the cool history of the Smith? I know Lewis and Clark were in the exped- were in the area, and you also your your outfitters named Lewis and Clark Expedition. So, what's what's some of the cool and unique history that you see going down the Smith River? You know, there's a lot of there's still a lot of Indian pictographs in that canyon. There's a, specifically a, about mile forty two. There's a huge cave inside that cave. There's a multitude of Indian pictographs. Uh, so you see those as you go through the corridor. Lewis and Clark, when they were coming up, and I think it was 1802, you know, they just kind of wandered up a little bit of the mouth, up the mouth of the Smith that flows into the Missouri. They never got deep into the canyon. White Sulphur Springs is the, the little town, and that's the, those are the headwaters of the Smith. That has a little bit more of an interesting history. What, uh, you know, Save the Smith is a big conservation effort right now. What is what is the issue going on in the Smith, and what are some of the efforts that are more current that they're working on? Okay, uh, there is a proposed copper mine in the headwaters of the Smith River, and the permitting process for our state falls under the jurisdiction of the Montana Department of Environmental Quality. In our state, Montana, uh, DEQ is built to process mining permits. It's not created to deny permits. And so as long as a mining company does its due diligence, uh, it will receive a permit to mine. And that's what is going on right now. Now, at this, what has happened in the past is that mining companies have abused that in this some of the mines not some there are mines in the state of montana 
that the taxpayers will be paying reclamation and rehabilitation for the rest of our lives on it. So you want to make sure if a, a mine is created that they are financially capable and responsible for any environmental damage. So that that's... Is that the biggest concern? Is it, you know, that they're going to cause damage and that they're not financially able to... Well, a lot of it, Landon, is that they can... I mean, there's a history of mining companies doing damage. Mm-hmm. And financially, uh, they fold up because to repair it costs... The bonds that mine aren't large enough to fully reclaim a, a, a poor mine or environmental disaster. And our fear is since it's the headwaters of the Smith and trout need cold, clean water, that if there is a mishap, you do that at the risk of destroying the Smith River. And the Smith, again, is so unique. Uh, they just don't make canyons like that anymore. And there isn't anything in my point of view that's worth jeopardizing. That. Yeah. Are you familiar with the Devil's River in, uh, in yeah, Texas? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would say like, you know, uh, super clean water and uh, I just want to give our Texas listeners like a comparable, you know, thing to think about for, you know, comparing Texas to the Smith for people that haven't heard of the Smith that, you know, it it would be the same same issue if we were talking about the Devil's River. So uh, is there so are they have the permits? Is there? Is it? Is the mine a done deal, or what is? What's going on? Like, what's? The, where's the latest update on that? And how do you feel? Do you feel like the mine is going to be introduced? And um, or you know, I, I know there's a lot of organizations fighting against it. Where do you currently see the situation going? Well, there'll, there'll be certain. There aren't issues. There are certain things that uh, that we would object to as part of. The process is one is that if they put in, uh, if they treat water, how do they treat water? How do they hold the water? And how do they, uh, how do you justify the science for the project? So those would be checks. And those checks, what you do is then you start suing. You end up in court. Okay. And, and that's how the, that that's just part of the process. And, and again, we'll see how all this works out. But the Smith River, uh, again, you go down it and you disconnect. You know, you're gone for five days. You camp out for four nights. There is no cell service. Uh, there just aren't a lot of places on the planet that you can get away from people and, you know, really bear witness to something greater than yourself. And that's a, a canyon that has uh, these thousand foot vertical walls, clean water, a great fishery. And really suggest a better time than today. I mean, it's as a as something natural and beautiful. It's still intact, and that's worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. So, hell, uh, I used to live in Austin <laughs> in the seventy. I mean, hell, it's a different world. Yeah. So, was Austin better in nineteen seventy than two thousand and twenty? I mean, there are parts of Austin that were a hell of a lot better fifty years ago than today. Mm-hmm. So uh, on the Smith, uh, uh, what what are the fish species that people can catch? Rainbows and browns. Why are there white fish? There are some white fish. Yes. Okay. okay. Where, wherever there's trout in Montana, there's white okay. fish. Okay. Okay. Um, rainbows and browns. Every size fish. Every size fish is thirteen inches. 
you get enough 16 to 18 inch fish to keep it interesting. You know, you have to have a feel that there's a big fish in the system Mm -hmm. and there's 20 inch fish to be had there, but they're all wild. They're all uh, healthy, you know, vital and terrific. Mm -hmm. Do you have any funny stories or, you know, so you're going down, you have 60 miles and the, it doesn't sound like there's any way to get off the river. Um, have you been on a trip where there's been an emergency situation and how did that go? Hmm. We've, we've taken people off before early, uh, but never a dire emergency where you have to get a helicopter in okay. there. So there's some homes along the way. we have, And so if there is an emergency, get somebody in a boat, you know, at least you can uh, get to a phone and contact somebody. Yeah, but we haven't had you know what you try to do is what you, know, you make your customers aware that you're outside the whole time. Mm-hmm. You know what's difficult is people are so used to so many conveniences they take them for granted. We had a 14 year old kid the first night. There was a campfire. He brings out his uh, iPad and he says, "What's the password?" And you say, "There is no password." He says, "Oh come on, tell me what the password is." He says, "There is no internet here." You know, I can't conceive of that. Um, I is there an ice cream shop on the trip? There's a there's a terrific <laughs> guest ranch called Deep Creek Outfitters and Heaven on Earth, and uh, they've been around hell since the '60s, and they've been they've helped out thousands of people on the Smith River. But if you stop in, they'll sell you ice cream sandwiches. Okay, yeah, I've heard, I've heard about that. You got to stop and get the ice mm-hmm. cream sandwiches. Well, they also will serve you drinks. Get a couple of drinks. So. <laughs> okay, <laughs> no, that sounds good. Um, so, uh, talk us through the trip and uh, just, you know, what do people need to know about going on the trip? What type of gear do people need to bring? And then, uh, what's the day to day look like while you're on the trip? Okay, well. I'm going to take a, give you a plug or give myself a plug. So we have an equipment list and can tell you quite a bit about the Smith River at our website, which is hwlodge.com. Need a sleeping bag. That's the most important thing. So we've had trips where clients will forget sleeping bags and you're giving them your sleeping bag. And next thing you know, you're trying to find some plastic tarps to sleep in. Sleeping bag is critical. How cold, How cold does it, it get? How cold does it get? It's damn cold. <laughs> well, hell, it'll it'll snow next week. Yeah. I mean, people get snowed on. Mm-hmm. So we have cots with thermal rest pads that kind of assist in, you know, getting up off the the ground mm-hmm. so you can gain a little bit of warmth. But you gotta have you gotta have a sleeping bag. You always need to bring long underwear, regardless of what time of year it is. If bring warm clothes, you have to prepare for winter and you have to prepare for summer, all in the same five days. Okay. Do people have to bring their own rods and equipment? No, we'll supply all that. Okay. They need it. Okay. Um, I, I don't understand why people buy rods and then leave them at home. I'd want to bring my own rod. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of there with you. I like bringing my own equipment, but I can see how, you know, packing and traveling with equipment, especially if you're going to fly up there, um, it can start to be a pain. So what does the day-to-day look like on the Smith? Walk us through a day on the oh, river. Sure. Uh, we start having coffee on at 6 in the morning, and we'll have breakfast at 7 o'clock in the morning. So we've, we've got uh, breakfast can be uh, French toast stuffed with mangoes, uh, pancakes, bacon, and eggs. 
And then, but our goal is about getting out and going fishing. So if we can get eat breakfast at seven, start doing the dishes at 7.30, our goal is to be on the water at nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, and then we'll come back. We go downstream each day, averaging 12 miles. And so we try to get back into camp between five and six o'clock. So people can kind of unwind and start having dinner at seven, 7.30. Uh, the people that are working there, you know, or end up doing the dishes at nine o'clock. Everybody goes to bed to start all over again. It goes like that for five days. You know, you get into a better, you get into a different rhythm. Uh, you know, you just get up early. Yeah. Go to bed, go to bed early, fish 12 hours a day and just repeat. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What is, uh, what is your, I, how many Smith River trips have you done? Oh God. I, almost, I think I've done close to 200. 200 but as a a company we've even done more than that so we've been around uh, since 93 so i think that's that's about 27 years that sound right Mm -hmm. and we you know so yeah we've done hundreds and hundreds of trips what is your most memorable smith river trip well when i first started out i remember i was sharing a tent with one of the clients and i didn't know what sleep apnea was and I'm hearing this guy. <laughs> I'm hearing this guy snore, and he wakes me up. And then there, he would be at a dead stop, in total silence. And I thought, oh my God, the guy's had a heart attack. And then I thought, I did not get his deposit. Always get the deposit. <laughs> no, you know the, what makes it memorable. I mean, a it's great scenery. It's also the people that you're with. Mm-hmm. And we're very fortunate when you guide somebody for a day, it's hi, how are you? And then see you later. After five days, I made lifelong friends doing this. Mm. No, I, you I, know, I've, I've had, I've had a great time. I could see that for sure. You go on a trip with somebody for a week without, you know, distractions and electronics and all the other, you know, you don't have to worry about your taxes while on the Smith. Where are you going to, where are you going to do that at? And you get to know people and you have a great trip. Well, I think you still worry about your taxes. The <laughs> government doesn't care. <laughs> uh, running a week-long trip, how many trips do you get in on a season? Well, this year we'll get 22. So we go May 10. In, in May, we'll go May 10, 21, 28, and 30. But then starting June 1st, we go three or four times a week to the first week in July. Wow. So this is a big organ. It, this sounds like a big uh, organization, a lot of uh, planning and stuff, because you got to get food and equipment and guides and clients and shuttles. and. Oh, and we move people from all over the state. Some of you fly into Bozeman. Some of you fly into Helena. Uh, you know, logistic, logistically, you know, there's uh, a lot of hoops to go through, but preparation equals performance. So if we do our job, in preparing for this, we'll be fine. I saw a video on YouTube. I can't remember the name. It was a TV show, but they did um, a a trip with veterans down the Smith. And I know, and I've even been asked this before, your lodge name is Healing Waters Lodge. And it's, I don't think it's directly associated with Project Healing Waters, but I know that you do Project Healing Water trips, um, maybe through the lodge and down the Smith. Yeah, we've taken, uh, we started taking veterans after the, in about 2004 and, and continued to do so up until COVID last year. Mm. Uh, where we get confused is that we're, one, the lodge is called Healing Waters Lodge. 
And then there's Project Healing Waters that uses fly fishing as a rehabilitative tool for veterans. So there's Project Healing Waters is nonprofit. We work like hell to be profit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's also been exceedingly uh, rewarding, especially, you know, in the early years of the Gulf War, we got a lot of really fresh, wounded young men and women uh, coming out of, you know, different hospitals in the United States going down the Smith River. And it was so great because the first group we had, we had uh, one soldier that had lost both legs. Uh, another one lost his leg. He ended up working for us for 10 years, but a- after five days with them, they said, what do you think about disabled vets? And what we really found out with that particular group is that they really weren't disabled. Mm. You know, they were making the adjustments. They were terrific. Yeah. No, that sounds like a, it sounds like a really cool trip. So, uh, and I've been to your lodge. Uh, how did the lodge come into the picture? Because that was later. You've been doing the the Lewis and Clark for a long time, and then more recently right. got into the lodge. Yeah, we've uh, we've in Montana. If you go to if if you go to a bar in Missoula, Bozeman, or Helena, a liquor license will cost a million dollars because there'll be there'll be gambling associated with it, the gambling machine. And so I was looking on the internet in Dillon and I saw this bar called the Longhorn Bar for sale. And it was for 150,000 bucks. And in that was that included the building. So you got the building, you got the bar and you got the liquor license. I said, I gotta get the hell down there. And so he looked at a couple other bars and restaurants that were pretty cheap. But I also had a friend of mine named Greg Lilly who started Healing Waters Lodge. And I was always asking him about Dylan. Finally, uh, one fall, he drove up and he was getting out of Healing Waters Lodge that he and his wife started. And he really escorted us into this. And after a lifetime of laying down financial bunts, we got into extra bases with the lodge. It's been a, it's just been terrific for us. I love the Ruby Valley. We really hit a home run here. Yeah, the lodge is really nice, and uh, the trip we did was—it's it, a really nice place to stay, and you have access to a couple different premier rivers, you know, that you could fish from the lodge. And uh, I really had a—I yeah, gr- had a gr- great time. Go to the Big Hole, the Beaverhead, the Jefferson, the Madison, the Ruby. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a—it's a hell of a menu to fish from. How and there's f- always new water. How far is the lodge from where you guys do the trips on the Smith? That's three hours. Three hours. So we okay. try to, yeah, we try to get people into Bozeman or Helena because just it's logistically easier for them. Yeah, we we're coming into Helena. Um, we yeah yeah. It's it's ninety minutes to to get on the river, and it's ninety minutes to get off. Okay, okay. Um, Cliff, do you have any you have any other questions that you can think of? I do actually. Uh, coming from Texas, because you you would be familiar with Hill Country, living in Austin, sure. and then moving to Montana. Which do you think is more pretty scenery? Oh God, Montana! Only because there's less people. Montana only has a million people. So I mean, it, you know, at, at the core of being a Westerner, uh, it's your relationship with space. You know, people that live in cities, it's a relationship with people. 
So being the West, it's, you know, we like, hell, you like space. You like empty. Mm-hmm. You yearn for yonder. <laughs> so <laughs> you, and, and I know Montana, you know, is like spring, summer, fall fishing. Is there anything that you do in the winter or is it just recuperate from running, you know, however many trips on the Smith that you did? I watch a lot of TV. <laughs> I, I might get on the couch in November. I might not move till the end of March. <laughs> so you hibernate. <laughs> you hibernate. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, winter is such a great time here. Everybody's gone. Another thing I would have to ask is, so I'm originally from Georgia, to give you my backstory. And when I moved here, uh, one of my friends had a friend who moved up to Montana. And he said that, he was asking about Montana and how it compared to Texas. And he said, Montana is everything Texas claims to be, but it actually <laughs> is. How do you feel about that statement? <laughs> oh God. I, you know, I, I, tr- I love Texas. Um, Montana, Montana's home. I was, this is where I'm augering in. This is the final act right here. And where we live, it, we're six miles from a town of 350 people. And our county, Madison County, has 40,000 cows, 7,500 people, and no stoplights. Nice. That's that, awesome. That's living. Yeah. yeah. Um, we kind of – we always ask our guests two questions. We kind, You kind of already answered one with uh, how did you start fly fishing. It sounds like, uh, you know, meeting, meeting the gentleman in the bars, how you got your start. What's your most memorable fish on the fly that you've caught? I was in uh, – I was in the Bob Marshall Wilderness, so I used to work with we used to work with a, a guy that did summer trips back in the Bob Marshall. And in the Bob, Bob Marshall Wilderness means you can't have any motorized vehicles. Anything with a motor, you can't have. So you access it on foot or by horseback. And again, there, when I was doing this, there, there weren't a hell of a lot of people there. I just made a, a five-weight rod, and I caught a, a fish that was like only 13 or 14 inches, but he was like having Roberto Duran on the end of the line. I mean, he was pissed. Was, and I just thought, man, I gotta, uh, I gotta keep that memory of what a great fish he was in small water. So that would, that'd be it. Not the biggest fish, not the uh, smallest fish, but uh, pound for pound or ounce for ounce. That, that was the memorable fish for me. What about most memorable fish with a client? Hmm. <laughs> a carp in the Missouri. A carp in the Missouri? Hey, yeah, you don't catch very many carp. I mean, I've we've caught, we got two accidentally. And we're talking about the Missouri Blow Holter Dam. There's the Blue Ribbon section of, of the Missouri. So you're, you're guiding. And this guy first says, like, you know, I got a log, I'm stuck. And then he yanks, and then the thing starts to move. And you, you think you have a world record brown trout, and you're going, you're taking the boat, crossing the river both times, and eventually you pull in this huge carp. But, you know, that's a hell of a fish. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah, that's my most memorable fish with the client. Was the your client disappointed that it wasn't a just no, like a huge, with, with, was a huge oh, trout? Uh, no, a little bit, but it was still, it was still worth, it still had great value. Yeah. It was terrific. Yeah, no, I, I, I was fishing with my buddy Will in New Mexico, 
um, in the Sargent Wilderness, and uh, we didn't know there were carp in there, and he hooked into a really nice fish. It ended up being a carp, but we saw the it would almost surface, and you'd see the brown. We saw how big it was. We're like, oh, that is just a huge trout, and it ended up being a carp. But I don't, I don't think he was super just. I think he was just super excited to catch a big carp. You know, carp to me remind me of redfish, and yeah, you know, often they kind of look, they're kind of plated the same. They kind of fight the same. I mean, they're strong. That's a that's a fun fish. No, for sure. If there's global warming. I'm going to learn to embrace the carp. <laughs> Um, is, Hey Mike, is there anything else you want to tell us about the Smith river? Anything that we forgot to mention that, okay, let me ask you this. Let's say that someone, uh, didn't want to do an outfitter trip, even though I would recommend doing an outfitter trip, but I know people can just draw permits on their own. What is that like? Um, when, when do people have to apply for a permit and how does that exactly work? Uh, they contact the Montana fish, wildlife and parks department in great falls. They put out a lottery at the end of February. So we'll get, we'll get calls all the time saying, I just drew a permit for August 15th. Your chances of going down the, the river are slim to none. There mm. just isn't enough water. So you, you've got X, you've thousands of people. They're all competing to get on the river June 15th. Yeah. Our, so you pick your date that you're applying for. for the, you pick the date that you're applying to launch, or is it just or randomly we, given out? For us as out for us as outfitters, our days are already allotted. Set. Okay. For the general public, uh, you when you put in, you might say, "Okay, I want January, uh, June 15th. You might say, "I want June fifteen, July fifteen, and August fifteen. Okay. And if the farther away you get away from June fifteenth, uh, your odds of going down the Smith decline. If you go to the front end, say you want June fifteen, May fifteen, April fifteenth. Now you're going to be dealing more with high winter or high winter, high water and winter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you guys run uh, rafts down the Smith or drift boats? We take drift boats when the water is high and rafts when the water is low. Okay. And then if someone were to drew a permit on their own and then called you up, would you take them down the river as an outfitter or is that really not an well, option? No, because no, we have our set dates and they, we can't use their date to take them down okay okay so someone goes through that process they have to get down there on their own right uh-huh. yeah yeah okay no that makes sense how many people do they allow per year down the river do you know what that number is boy not off the top of my head you'd have to say okay there's uh there's 73 commercial launches there's eight launches a day available and so you go eight times 30 is what 240 and then say april may june july so that's 480 about 960 okay available launches yeah now you can go outside of those margins you know you can go january 15 it's just going to be a different type of trip (laughs) (laughs) yeah no no for sure so uh um no that sounds good mike i i don't think i have any other questions anything else you want people to know bring a sleeping bag bring warm bring warm clothes and yeah Bring your will, uh, bring your survival kit. No, this is their cushy trips. Yeah, yeah, no. You, you bring the right, you bring the right gear. Make sure you're prepared for both winter and summer, and you'll have a great time. Okay. There's no such thing as a bad trip on the Smith River. No, I can't imagine there is, even if it is cold or raining or you know something else. Unless you didn't bring a rain jacket and it's raining and you're wet the whole time. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah. 
And we bring a lot of extras for people, too. Okay. But, you know, my wife and I, we sunk our life savings into this lodge. And so we get to fish the big old Beaverhead Jefferson, the Madison. If I only had one river to do one more time, I'd be on the Smith River. You know, um, when I did my trip with you to Montana, I had I had kind of done a route. Um, I think before the trip, I had went up and fished the Missouri with uh, David Perkins. And then came down and fished my group with you and then went up to Missoula and uh, uh, fished with some friends, uh, Rob and Jenny Woodruff. And uh, I, a- along the way and people I met, I always asked everyone, you know, Montana is known for having these famous trout fishing rivers. Just everywhere you look, there's a famous trout fishing river. And I always ask, well, what is your favorite river to fish? What is your favorite river? Every answer is the Smith River. If you can ever do the Smith River, do the Smith River. It's the Smith River. So why, what makes the Smith River, what puts it in a different level than the other famous trout fishing rivers of Montana? Well, because, because it takes a little bit of skill to get down there. You're camping for five nights. Uh, you, you fight the weather, the elements. Uh, you bond with people. Uh, the, the, really, the best thing about the Smith River is when you see families going down downstream. So they're teaching their kids about conservation, how to keep the campground clean, how to, how to stay warm at night. You know, it's, it's just a great learning tool. It, it, it's the closest thing we can get to our past in Montana. It's mm. just the best game around. Okay. No, I think that sounds good. Well, Mike, anything you want to close on before we go? No, but thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I look forward to seeing you in June. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to We got our, my dad and I got our flights and everything. We were bummed about uh, the Yellowstone thing with the rental car. Um, but we're, we're excited to go. We're going to be, flying into Helena, flying out of Helena. And uh, I'm looking forward to going down down the river with my dad. I think it'll be a, a great trip. So, All right. Uh, all right. I got to run. Thank you guys very yeah. much. You're welcome. Thanks, Stay Mike. Safe. Thanks, Mike. All right. All right. Well, uh, Cliff, what do you think of, our, of having Mike on the... I think he's knowledgeable. Would, would, would you go down the Smith? I would. I... I I wouldn't mind. I want to go to Montana one day mm-hmm. anyway. Like, it's definitely on my bucket list, and I've never been able to make it out there. Yeah. I honestly wouldn't mind moving even to Montana. Like, mm-hmm. if an opportunity for work actually opened up, it would be hard-pressed for me to say I'm not. Sounds like that. you could be a cattle rancher in his county. I probably could. I don't think there's any old builders with I'll, 750 people. I don't think I know, uh, know that much about cattle to do it up there. But it, I would... I would totally do a trip like the Smith with them. Mm-hmm. I'd also be willing to just like put our name in the hat and see what happens. We we can. I know. I'm sure there's outfitters up there that you could. Because I can row, and uh, uh, if I go down at once and kind of know what the deal is, then that makes it a little bit easier. That's what you got to do on the Devils, or you know, a lot of people float the Brazos for a couple days. Yeah, but I wouldn't do the Devils River alone either. No, uh, no. it's too. I have faith in my outdoor abilities and my outdoor knowledge that I could like survive it and stuff like that. But there's always these one-off chances of something happening. And if, if it went sideways for whatever reason, wouldn't know what to do. I'd rather just 
if I was going to do a trip like that, I would want someone who is very, very, very knowledgeable for the, the first time, too. for the first trip. Yeah, but I've never done either one. No, so that so. my my thing is always like you know, uh, first trip down, especially a trip like that. I want to go with somebody that's done it before, knows what's going on, and then that'll kind of give me the knowledge to build on to do that trip on my own. Um, but anyway, well, um, we appreciate you guys listening to the podcast. If y'all want to go on a trip with Mike uh, down the Smith, uh, let me know. Shoot us an email or email Mike. We'll put his information down there for you. Yeah, it. We have some uh, we have some great products on our website. If you guys want to go check them out, Cliff, what's what's your favorite honey hole angling product that we currently have on the website? There's not one. There's not one. I like them all. You like them all? <laughs> no, uh, probably. I'm a big hat guy, mm-hmm. and although y'all won't make the one that I actually want, no, we're out of blue ones. We're we need to order the the. You want green, right? I olive. do want an olive. Yeah, we need to reorder, but when the olive in the olive. Yeah. Can we do the patch on it with the uh, the original patch? I guess is what we'd have to do because we got the stamp for it. Yeah, yeah, that's what we would do. Yeah, I would. Uh, I'd probably start asking to trade my blue one for the olive because I had to buy the blue one. Well, no, keep the blue one, make it your work hat, and then make the olive one your, or vice versa, make the blue one your nice hat and then the olive one your work hat. My date hat? Your date hat. Yeah. Yeah, your date hat. But uh, the best sellers on the website are definitely Kevin's books. Um, His books are pretty bomb. Yeah, we... uh, Kevin's books moving his fly tying kits too. So, but uh, if we appreciate you guys considering just considering supporting us, um, checking out our website, and uh, thanks for listening to episode forty one of Honey Hole Hangout. If you guys want to submit a question or anything, just shoot us a message on Insta, Facebook, shoot us an email, and we'll make sure to include your question in our how next many, podcast. How many reviews do we have now? We're still at six. We got we've gotten more like star ratings, but. No new written reviews. We need four more written reviews, guys. Ten. What's our, uh, what number are we at on just star ratings? 22. 22. Five stars? Or is it five and that one, one? I think it's five and one. Okay. That's 21 not too bad. fives and one, one star. I'm still curious. It eats me up. Like, it does kind of like who did it. I bet it was one of our friends. It has to be. Yeah. Bet it's Jack. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we'll, we'll see y'all next week. Bye. Bye. May the fourth be with you. No, not doing that.